Good morning. Good morning. We're, I just wanted to make sure we're awake. I do add that uh, a welcome to that of uh, Jordan's and look forward to being able to catch up with you after the service for a, uh, a cup of coffee or tea and a chat. Please turn with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 6. I've been working through the book of Ecclesiastes and sometimes I ask myself, why am I doing this to myself? Why am I doing this to the congregation? And the only reason I keep going is because all scripture is given by the inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for teaching and instruction in righteousness. And that includes the book of Ecclesiastes, of course. This is probably one of the most darkest passages in the book as Solomon searches out what it's like to live under the sun, what it's like to live without God in your life, what it's like to just put him aside. And sometimes we think, well, that doesn't include me, I'm a Christian. But how often do we also leave God aside? Sure, we'll never lose our salvation. Sure, we uh, have eternal life. We have it now. We have eternal life as believers right this very minute. It cannot be taken from you. But our daily walk, do we walk daily with the Lord? Do we walk under the sun or do we walk with God? In Ecclesiastes chapter 6 that we're looking at this morning talks about the disappointed, disappointment of unsatisfied desires. There's a, a writer for the Wall Street Journal. His name is Jonathan Clements. And he wrote this. We may have life and liberty, but the pursuit of happiness isn't going so well. We constantly hanker after fancier cars and fatter paychecks and initially such things boost our happiness. But the glow of satisfaction quickly fades and soon we're yearning for something else. Maybe it happens at Christmas time, you get what you thought you wanted, you enjoy it for a little while and then you think, oh, I wished I'd got that for Christmas and the fact is, our longings never go away. They always return. And this disappointment of unsatisfied desires is what uh, Solomon is talking about. It's as old as Solomon. It's still happening today in the 21st century. Just look what Solomon said last time I was with you in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 10, just to, to pick up on a few things. Ecclesiastes 5.10 Solomon said, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves abundance with its income. This too is vanity. And we talked about that last time we were together. And after considering the vanity of prosperity, Solomon concluded that the only way to find any satisfaction in life is to trust in God. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, 18 to 20 is, was his conclusion. I'll read it for you. Here is what I have seen to be good and fitting, to eat, to drink, 
and enjoy oneself in all one's labours in which he toils under the sun during the few years of his life which God has given him. For this is his reward. Furthermore, as for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth, he has also empowered him to eat from them and to receive his reward and rejoice in his labour. This is the gift of God. For he will not often consider the years of his life because God keeps him occupied with the gladness of his heart. That was the conclusion that Solomon came to under the, uh, the heading of he who loves money will not be satisfied with money. And that's what we looked at last time. But Solomon didn't stay on that subject long. He gave us a wonderful conclusion in 18 to 20 saying that this is the gift of God. But then he starts lamenting again. And he laments on the many problems he sees under, with life under the sun. And that's when we get to Ecclesiastes chapter 6. Have a look at verse 1 and 2. There is an evil which I have seen under the sun. Again, just to remind you, under the sun marks out the limited viewpoint of living life without God in the picture. There is an evil which I have seen under the sun and it is prevalent among men. A man to whom God has given riches and wealth and honour so that his soul lacks nothing of all that he desires, yet God has not empowered him to eat from them, for a foreigner enjoys them. This is vanity and a severe affliction. This man in the, in the verse seems to have it all. Not only is he worth a fortune, he also was famous. He had honour. Yet for an unspecified reason... He couldn't enjoy what he had. We don't know what reason, and I'm not going to go into any speculation. The fact is, whatever it was, he had riches, he had wealth, he had fortune, he had honour, but he couldn't enjoy it. Not only could he not enjoy it, it was given or taken by another man or another person who was a foreigner. Martin Luther called these verses a description of a rich man who lacks nothing for a good and happy life and yet does not have one. Unlike the man that we looked at in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, the man in chapter 6 had God-given riches. That's what it says, that he had God-given riches and wealth, but there was no satisfaction with it. Now I'd like to make a quick point here. The riches and the wealth of the man in chapter 5 were a gift from God. I'll read it again. Furthermore, as for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth, he has also empowered him to eat from them and to receive his reward. The riches, the wealth and the honour of the man in chapter 6 are also a gift from God. Verse 2, a man to whom God has given riches and wealth and honour, so that he lacks nothing for himself of all he desires, yet God does not give him the power to eat of it. You see, the gaining of riches and wealth is not simply an achievement that you can do. A person can gain nothing unless God permits him to do so. James 1.17 says, Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, 
coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. But not only is God the one that will give you the riches as you work hard and use your hand, God will give them to you, or God is the one that gives them to you. In his sovereignty, he also gives you the power to eat of those riches. And he gives you the power not to eat of it. Did you notice that in verse 19 and chapter 6 verse 2? God had given the man the riches in chapter 5 and he empowered him to eat of them. He gave him the power to use them and and that was his reward and he rejoiced in his labour. The man in chapter 6 verse 2, God had given him riches and wealth and and honour. He didn't lack anything but the end of verse 2 said God does not give him the power to eat of it. The capacity to enjoy God-given wealth and riches is also a gift from God. But in Ecclesiastes chapter 6, verse 2, this is withdrawn and the riches are now enjoyed by a stranger. As I said, I don't know why, the scriptures don't tell us why the man's riches are enjoyed by this stranger. So I'm not going to speculate. But let's just say for some providential reason, Someone who seemed to have everything he could ever want never had the chance to enjoy it. It was there today, it's gone tomorrow. And when it left, it went to someone who was entirely a foreigner to him. And what did Solomon call this? He called it vanity and a severe affliction. The New Living Translation says that's just meaningless. That's just a sickening tragedy. The New Living Translation says, what's the point? What's the point of all that? What's the point of having God-given riches and then God not having given you the power to enjoy them? Meaningless, sickening, severe affliction. It's vanity. Notice also that Solomon described this situation in verse 1 as prevalent among men. In other words, it happens all the time. One person loses everything God's given him and allowed him to work so hard to gain and then someone else comes along and just takes it. Maybe Solomon got this from his dad because David wrote the very same thing in Psalm 39 verse 6. This is what David wrote, Solomon's dad. Surely every man walks about like a shadow. Surely they busy themselves in vain. He heaps up riches and does not know who will gather them. That was David in Psalm 39 verse 6. Verses 1 to 2 ended with meaningless, a sickening tragedy, a severe affliction, vanity. So what can we learn from them? What can we learn from this unfortunate situation in verses 1 and 2? Well, let's start by recognising that our possessions cannot bring us joy. The the gifts that God has given us and the power to enjoy those gifts come separately. The two men of chapter 5 and chapter 6 had gifts from God, but only one man was given the gift to enjoy them. 
And this is why having more money can never guarantee that you will find enjoyment from that more money. Without God, even the riches and the wealth and the honour, even with all those things, will still be discontented. This is vanity. This is severe affliction. This is living under the sun like living without God. It's pointless. And the reality is, as we picked up from last time in chapter 5, the only way that we can enjoy what we have from God is when we keep him at the centre of our existence. When we're not living under the sun. When we, we can experience real joy in the gifts that God has given us. When we keep him central. You see, the fear of the Lord is not just the beginning of wisdom or the beginning of knowledge. The fear of the Lord is also the source of satisfaction in our lives. Verses 1 and 2. What are we going to learn from that? Well, let's learn that God is the one that gives everything. He's also the one to give us the power to enjoy those things. But if satisfaction is not or without God, is not guaranteed. And it's meaningless anyway, according to what Solomon has written, then maybe we might as well have not been born. And this is the dark possibility that Solomon now gives us or considers. This is the dark part of this verse or this section. Look at verse 3. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years, how many they be, but his soul is not satisfied with good things and he does not even have a proper burial, then I say, better the miscarriage than he. For it comes in futility and goes into obscurity and its name is covered in obscurity. It never sees the sun, it never knows anything, it is better off than he. Even if the other man lives a thousand years twice and does not enjoy good things, do not all go to one place? This Hebrew language seems to equate the man described in verse 3 as the man in verse 2. So God had given this man riches and wealth and honour so that his soul lacks nothing of all that he desires. He also had the best life of any Old Testament uh, person at that time. In a culture that considered children to be a great blessing, Solomon used hyperbole to say that this man was so blessed that he fathered a hundred sons and daughters. And again, using hyperbole, Solomon says this man also could have lived for many years, 2,000 according to verse 6. So he could have had a hundred sons, he could have had lived for 2,000 years. That's how blessed he was. He was so rich and blessed with children in years, yet his soul is not satisfied with the good things. Notice that it was his soul, specifically, that was dissatisfied in the middle of verse 3. Yet his soul is not satisfied. Something is missing. Something's missing in his life spiritually. I don't think this is mine originally, but I call it a God hole. Every person 
born has a God hole in their life, in their spirit, ready to be filled with God. When it's not filled with God, it's filled with money. It's filled with anything else that you want to put on, on the throne. I call it a God hole. This man had a God hole. His soul was not satisfied with the good things. He had them. He was blessed, but he, he didn't have a soul that was satisfied. And again, when the man died, he didn't even receive a, a burial. Again, in Solomon's time, that meant that he was cursed by God. And what Solomon is trying to show us, I believe, is that this person without God can have all the things that you can dream of and still leave this life unnoticed, unlamented and unfulfilled. And so Solomon thinks to himself, if we're so miserable with life, then maybe we'd be better off not having even been born. So Solomon considers the situation of a miscarriage or a stillborn child. According to verse 4, the child comes in futility because its delivery is empty. The child goes into or departs into obscurity. Now I have to mention here that the Hebrew word translated obscurity, if you have the NASB, is better translated darkness in the New King James or the Old King James because the Hebrew word chosek means absence of light, absence of illumination. In other words, the baby dies before it sees the light of day. Job felt the same way. He wrote in 3.16, Why was I not hidden like a stillborn child, like infants who never saw light? So Job felt the same way as this man or Solomon was writing about. Even the child's name is covered in darkness. No one gets to know his character or their abilities. The child never comes into this world. It never sees the sun. Verse 5 says it never knows anything. And Solomon's thought is this stillborn child never had to endure pain or see suffering. Never had to struggle with guilt or sin. The child is the first to die and ends up in the same place anyway. Look at the end of verse 5. The miscarried child is better off than that person who lives a 2,000 years, who has everything they could ever want. After all, don't they all go to the one place anyway? Life under the sun. Maybe you're thinking that existence is better than non-existence. A difficult life is better than no life at all though. But the problem Solomon faced was not whether existence is better than non-existence. That's not what he's saying here. What he's saying, is there any purpose behind the idea of why a person should have so much and yet be deprived of the, of the power to enjoy them and they end up in the same place anyway? You can see the the lamenting behind it, what his thoughts are. What's the point of living 2,000 years, having everything, not enjoying it, and end up in the same place as a stillborn child? 
Someone, even someone who lives that long, yet his soul is not satisfied with goodness, comes to the same end as a stillborn child. And this is life under the sun. This is life without God. We're in a privileged position to know that this life is not all there is. We sit here this morning and we have the privilege that Solomon didn't have at this particular time or wasn't revealed to him in the New Testament that we know that this is not all life is. And Jesus proved that when he died and he rose again. He brought the light of the resurrection out of the darkness of the grave and so when we as believers are buried and when we bury our children, it's always with the sure and certain hope of the resurrection of the dead. But Solomon's not ready to give that to his readers yet. What he's still doing and has been doing since the beginning of the book is he's trying to show our need for God. He's leading us down this dark path so that when he gets to the end of the book or the end of his journal in chapter 11 and chapter 12, he'll be able to write things like, the conclusion when all has been heard is fear God and keep his commandments because this applies to every person. But he's leading us down this dark path so that we will get to see that we need that. And so this dark path that we're travelling down is all for the purpose of preparing us and his readers for the conclusion that he will give us. Fear God, keep his commandments. But that's later on. That doesn't happen for another few chapters yet. Right now, Solomon's dissatisfaction continues to show in the verses that follow. He leads us down this dark path and he keeps going. In verses 1 and 2, he talked about a man who had everything he wanted in life but didn't have a chance to use it or enjoy it. In verses 3 to 6, he used a comparison to argue that if we can't enjoy life, if we have 2,000 years, we have all the money but we can't enjoy it, then we might as well never have been born. We end up in the same place anyway. And then he goes into verse 7 and he says, I wonder if we'll ever be satisfied. Verse 7, All of man's labour is for his mouth, and yet the appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage does the wise man have over the fool? What advantage does the poor man have knowing how to walk before the living? Verse 7, Solomon tells us what happens when we feed our appetite. We get hungry again. Have you noticed that? You get hungry again. The same hunger returns day after day after day. We eat food to give us strength to work and to earn our daily bread, which we then eat to give us strength to work again tomorrow. And it goes on and on and on. Now understand here that Solomon's not suggesting for a minute that it's wrong to either work or eat. Many people enjoy doing both. But if our lives consist of only in working and eating to work, then there's something wrong. There's something wrong with your life if all we do is eat so we have an energy to work, so we can earn money to eat, so we can have an energy to work. 
And verse 8 says it doesn't matter how wise we are or how much money we have, we all have unfulfilled longings. What advantage does the wise man have over the fool? The Hebrew answer is none. What advantage does the poor man have knowing how to walk before the living? None. There is no advantage. If all you do is, is satisfy your appetite, then the wise man has no advantage over the fool and the poor man has no advantage of trying to better his situation. Solomon's not belittling either education or self-improvement. He's only saying that these things of themselves cannot make your life richer. Under the sun, where do we find our satisfaction? We try and find it in everything that life has to offer, food and drink and music and beauty and family and friends and whatever else you can think of. But the reality is we must have something greater for which to live. We must have. Otherwise, we're just earning to eat, to get stronger, to work, to earn, to eat. But he doesn't give us an answer. He goes straight into verse 9. What the eyes see is better than what the soul desires. This too is futility and a striving after wind. The New Living Translation brings it out a little bit clearer. Enjoy what you have rather than desiring what you don't have. Just dreaming about nice things is meaningless like chasing the wind. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Sounds like the old adage we have, a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush. Solomon is saying it's better to have little and really enjoy it than to dream about it and never have it. It's better to have the little, really enjoy what you do have, than to dream about what you don't have and never attain it. There's nothing wrong with vision, there's nothing wrong with dreams, but be very careful because dreams have a way of becoming nightmares if we don't come to grips with the reality of life. It is better to have and enjoy the little than dream after that which is unattainable. True satisfaction. What does Scripture say about true satisfaction when it comes to doing the will of God? Jesus said in John 4.34, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. In the will of God there will be riches with enjoyment. There will be labour with satisfaction. But we must accept God's plan for our lives. We must receive what he has given us gratefully and not be looking to what he hasn't given us. We need to enjoy each day what he has given us and is enabling us to do. David again wrote in Psalm 16 verse 11, You will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forever. That's life under God. Life under the sun without God, it's meaningless, it's pointless. The truth remains that only God can fully satisfy any one of us. 
And he fully satisfies us through his word, through the word of God. He fully satisfies us through worship, that we worship him, submitting ourselves to him, bowing down before him, serving him. He fully satisfies us through the the power of the Holy Spirit as the Holy Spirit guides us and leads us and directs us into all truth. And those things are, are needful to be remembered when we feel unhappy about what's happening in our lives. Understanding that through his word, through our worship of him and through the Holy Spirit, that is the satisfaction, that, the only satisfaction that will come. Solomon hasn't finished yet. He's pulling us down further into this dark path. He said that satisfaction is not guaranteed without God. He's wondered if people would have been better off not to have been born without God. He's admitted the futility of an insatiable appetite without God. Now in verses 10 and 11 he says, Without God, life is just the same old, same old until you die. And then he says, who knows what happens after that anyway? Look at verse 10. Whatever exists has already been named, and it is known what man is. For he cannot dispute with him who is stronger than he is. For there are many words which increase futility. What then is the advantage to a man? These verses are actually the midpoint of Ecclesiastes. But Solomon is saying the same things he said at the beginning of the book. If he said it once, he said it a dozen times, there is nothing new under the sun. He continues to say it. I'll put you in in a secret though. In chapter 7 we start looking at wisdom. He starts, it's like we're being dragged down into this mire. Chapter 7, from chapter 7, which I'll be with you in a couple of weeks, he's starting to, we're going up the hill. But right now he continues to drag us down. He says the names have already been assigned for everything. Everything is labelled, everything is categorised. He says even the human condition is what it's always been ever since the fall of Adam and Eve. Vanity and striving after wind is all there is. This lament reminded Martin Luther of an old German proverb. All things have been, so they still are. And as things are, so they will be. I don't know what it is in German, but that's what it is in English. Solomon's point is that if we're unhappy with the way things are, don't argue with God about it. Don't argue with the one who is stronger than you. That's what the end of verse 10 says. And the one stronger is the Almighty God. We tend to like to argue with God sometimes. I'll use Job as an example again. We've already used him once. I'll use him again after God answered Job out of the world when Job had to confess this. He says, I have uttered what I do not understand. Therefore I despise myself and I repent in dust, dust, dust and ashes. You see, we need to know our limits and one of our limits is we cannot out-talk God. For there are many words, verse 11 says, which increase futility. 
no matter what you say with many words, telling God that he ought to do this or he shouldn't do that will never change his wise plan for ruling the universe. Do we have a tendency to dispute with him who is stronger than we are? Even Paul wrote about it in Romans 9.20. He said, Who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing moulded will not say to the moulder, Why did you make me like this? Will it? And the answer is, of course, no, or not. Or does the, the potter have a right over the clay? And the answer is, yes, he does. You can't argue with God and win. And that's what that verse is saying. Those verses are saying, you can't argue with God and win. Solomon closes this section with two basic questions about the meaning of life. The first question is about our present existence. The beginning of verse 12 says, For who knows what is good for a man during his lifetime, during the few years of his futile life? He will spend them like a shadow. Who knows? Solomon knows that life is short. He, he gives us an example like a shadow, a shadow passing by of a cloud. He knows that life is futile and, fu and full of vanity without God. He's been saying it repeatedly since the beginning of his journal and yet he still asks and still wants to know how do you have a good life? For who knows what is, what is good for a man during his lifetime? Well, the answer is God does. And we're going to look at that in chapter 7. He's brought us to the bottom. And I say, thank the Lord that we've reached the bottom and we can get up now. Life may be like a fleeting and elusive cloud or even a bubble. But he who does the will of God abides forever. Solomon's second question is about the life to come. He wants to know what's going to happen next. Verse, the end of verse 12, For who can tell a man what will be after him under the sun? Who can tell what's going to, what life is after without God? Again, God can. But if we leave God out of the question, only looking at things under the sun like many, many people do, in fact, myriads of people do today, then they're not certain what will happen after they die. They don't know. They come up with a lot of different ideas, usually born out of a TV show where angels are sitting on clouds and with wings and playing harps and whatever. But they're not certain what, what will happen when they die. They don't know what life is after without God with, under the sun. But you and I are able to take God at his word, using his word, and believe the promises he's made in the Bible. And we know there is life to come. There is two lives. You can either spend eternity with God or you can spend eternity without God. They're the two choices that you have while you're on this earth. Eternity with God, eternity without God in a place that is called the lake of fire. The other place is called heaven. Heaven. 
After Christ died for our sins and rose again, he ascended into heaven. Right now, he's there preparing a place for us as believers. He's preparing it in the presence of God. And when the right time has come, and I think Bill mentioned or someone mentioned, when the right time has come, the Lord will come and he will take his bride to be with him and we will be with him forever. He will come and he will take us. He's preparing that place right now. And the way to that blessed place, the only way to that blessed place is simply to trust in Jesus Christ as the forgiveness of our sin. The way not to get to that place is don't trust Christ. I hope and pray that as we're mentioning this this morning that you're working out in your mind whether you have trusted Christ for your salvation, for the propitiation of your sin and you are heading, in fact not just heading, but you have eternal life already in Him, in heaven. Or whether you're working out in your mind that you've never trusted Christ for your sin and the only place that is looking, or you're looking toward is what Revelation calls the lake of fire. But Solomon is letting us know that living life under the sun, living a life without God, there is no way to escape the vanity of our existence. Nothing matters. Our longings or your longings will never be satisfied. Your appetites will keep wandering forever. They'll just keep over and over again. As a result, sometimes you might even be tempted to think that I'm better off dead than being in this life without God. And no amount of complaining, no amount of arguing is going to change any of that. And then we're told we have no idea when we're under the sun what happens after life anyway. But I thank the Lord and in my own personal life that I know that this life is a short preparation for a long eternity with God. This life is not all there is. This life is just a pilgrimage. My citizenship right now is in heaven. It's there. It's, it's being got for me by the shed blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm just passing through this life as a pilgrim. And I know that one day my citizenship will be taken up in heaven. And so this life is not meaningless, it's not futile, it's bounded around God, it's actually a preparation for my time with God in eternity. And so everything matters, everything that I do matters, everything that I say, and we'll see that more next week or next time in chapter 7. And I do know that there is joy for me in this world, and I do know there is joy for me at the right hand of God when the time comes. So is your soul satisfied this morning? Or are you still trying to find satisfaction in your wealth or in your job or in your family or how long you live, whatever, anything that Solomon has mentioned? Are you spending all your time and energy pursuing the wrong things? those things that are under the sun, that have no meaning? Are you living your life that way? The alternative is living our lives in the pursuit of God, who, when it's boiled down, 
particularly by Solomon at the end of his book, God is the only one who will bring true satisfaction to your soul anyway. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, 18, which we read earlier, is a great conclusion to this book as well, or this chapter as well. So I'm going to read it again, just as a conclusion to being dragged down into the mire of Solomon's thoughts and living under the sun, to the knowledge that chapter 7 will start taking us up when we look at wisdom and what that's all about, God's wisdom and how that pertains to our life and how we start dragging ourselves out of it, well not ourselves, but dragging uh, the thoughts out of the mire, out of the darkness. We're at the middle of the book and now we're going to get to the conclusion in chapter 12 and 13. But this is a conclusion to this this section. Chapter 5, verse 18. This is what I have observed to be good, that it is appropriate for a person to eat, to drink, and to find satisfaction in their toilsome labour under the sun during the few days of life God has given them. For this is their lot. Moreover, when God gives someone wealth and possessions and the ability to enjoy them, to accept their lot and to be happy in their, in their toil, this also is a gift of God. They seldom reflect on the days of their life because God keeps them occupied with the gladness of their heart. Let's pray together. Father, we do look on this word that you have given us in the book of Ecclesiastes and I dare say, Lord, you know my thoughts. You've seen the struggles of this week in the knowledge of how dark and, and foreboding this passage is. Yet, Lord, we are so thankful that this passage is only foreboding for those who are without you. For those who would leave you aside, for those who live under the sun without any knowledge or acclamation of of yourself. We thank you, Lord, that we have your word that shows us that as born-again believers, we have riches beyond compare. We have the joy of being able to be satisfied in all that we have and all that we do, not because of the, the things themselves that even are gifts from you, but that, Lord, you give us the enjoyment and the power to enjoy what we do have. Help us to enjoy the little that we have and not to go after the, the large that we do not have. Help us to be satisfied in you and not in our goods or our chattels or our situation, but to be happy and gloriously happy in you, knowing that, Father, we know that this is just a pilgrimage that we're passing through, that one day we will be called to our home and that eternity will be spent with you, worshipping, glorifying you. Help us to always keep that in mind, and we ask it in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.